0: Turn now to Nahum chapter one. It's page seven eighty-two if you have your pew Bibles. Be reading Nahum one one through two two. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum. Of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the land is restoring the majesty of Jacob. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. The law of the Lord is perfect. sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover by them is your servant warned in keeping them, there is great reward. God may our eyes be enlightened by your word today. May we desire your word more than gold. May it be sweeter to our lips than honey. Let the words of my mouth In the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps you've had a similar conversation to some that I've had when talking to someone about your faith in Christ. The person will make the statement, the God I believe in, fill in the blank. They may something, say something like, the God I believe in is a God of love. The God I believe in wouldn't send people to hell. Or on the kind of the flip side, it might be put to you. How can you believe in a God who fill in the blank? These often relate to the so-called problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and can stop evil, and if God is good and chooses not to stop evil, people say, therefore, then God can't exist, or I can't believe in a God like that. I do want to acknowledge up front that people have legitimate questions about the faith. They have legitimate moral dilemmas. Don't want to discount that. Not everything that someone says to you is a cop out just because they don't want to talk to you. But a lot of times, these questions are raised in times of natural disaster, especially. Thinking about the earthquake in Turkey and Syria that has at least 28,000 now confirmed dead. This is devastating. We should pray. We should seek to give aid as much as we can. We should acknowledge that there are a lot of hard questions that need to be answered. In 2013, after a tornado hit Moore, Oklahoma, you might remember this, it was May of 2013, almost 10 years ago. Moore, Oklahoma, a city almost the size of Oshkosh, about 62,000. 25 people were killed and over $2 billion of damage was done. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary President Albert Moeller wrote an article in response to this titled, The Goodness of God and the Reality of Evil. Muller wrote, every thoughtful person must deal with the problem of evil. Evil acts and tragic events come to us all in this veil of tears known as human life. The problem of evil and suffering is undoubtedly the greatest theological challenge we face. Most persons face this, this issue only in a time of crisis. A senseless accident, a wasting disease, or an awful crime demands some explanation. Yesterday, evil showed its face again as a giant tornado brought death and destruction to Moore, Oklahoma. For the atheist, this is no great problem. Life is a cosmic accident. Morality is an arbitrary game by which we order our lives and meaning is non-existent. As Oxford University's Professor Richard Dawkins explains, human life is nothing more than a way for selfish genes to multiply and reproduce. There is no meaning or dignity To humanity. He goes on then later to say People all over the world are demanding an answer to the question of evil. It comes only to those who claim that God is mighty and that God is good. How could a good God allow these things to happen? How can a God of love allow killers to kill, terrorists to terrorize, and the wicked to escape without a trace? These questions require sincere compassionate engagement from the people of god they require theological precision and a careful handling of the scriptures i will not stand here and pretend to try to solve all the complexities that have puzzled people throughout all of human history but i do want to submit to you that we can acknowledge that there is a problem beneath the problem if the questions related to the so-called problem of evil are asked while presupposing incorrect things about God, then that is a deeper problem. The further that we move away from biblical authority and the centrality of God's self-revelation, the more we begin to define God according to what we want him to be like. That is called idolatry, creating a God in our own image. This has been a constant theme throughout the Minor Prophets. The people of God, mostly, being the target audience, being reminded by God's covenant enforcers, the prophets, that God is displeased with their idolatry, with how they forget him and how they run after other lovers, how they trust in other nations to deliver them. We come now to the book of Nahum. Like Obadiah, who prophesied against the nation of Edom, Nahum sets his sights not on God's people the people of judah but on the nation of assyria and its capital city nineveh and then on its king we find ourselves here in the middle of the 7th century bc probably about 650 bc when the nation of assyria was militarily at its full strength we know this because there is mention in chapter 3 verse 8 of the destruction of thebes a city in egypt which was destroyed in 663, and then Nineveh did not fall until 612, so we are somewhere in between 663 and 612. Now we already know a little bit about Nineveh, right? Went through Jonah this summer. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to warn the people to repent, and they did, and God relented from the disaster that he had promised them, and that was about 100 years prior to this. But a lot can change in 100 years, can't it? Think about the changes we've seen in our own culture in 100 years or in 20 years, right? Assyria and its king, Ashurbanipal, say that three times fast, has been on a rampage, destroying every nation around it, enslaving and slaughtering their people, and boasting about how savage they are. He called himself the great king the mighty king, the king of the universe. God sent Nahum to call King Ashurbanipal, his capital city of Nineveh, and the whole nation of Assyria to account for their wickedness, not only against God's people, but against the surrounding nations as well. The beauty of Nahum's oracle, which we see here in chapter one, verse one, it's called an oracle, usually being related to kind of a, a message of woe. Uh, We see also that it says the book of the vision of Nahum. So this was a written prophecy versus what was mostly spoken. But we see the beauty in this hymn of praise in chapter 1 verses 2 through 8. Part of what is really helpful for us as we wrestle with some of the difficult questions about the existence of evil and God's goodness and at what level God intervenes is what is helpful here is to see the universality of the message in verses two through eight now we're while we will see the focus of the of Nahum's message narrow from Assyria to Nineveh to then the king uh, from chapter one nine to the end of the book we here get all of humanity addressed as Nahum begins by addressing the question who is God, notice the repetition of the phrase the Lord is in verses two and three. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Verse three, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Look down then at verse seven, the Lord is good the question that is raised so often is how can God be jealous avenging wrathful and good we could turn that question on its head and ask what would God be like if he was jealous avenging wrathful and not good the answer is the king of Assyria right well let's look at a few of these characteristics of God The Lord is jealous. This word is used six times in the Old Testament to refer to God besides here. And every one of those times, it is in relation to idol worship or the worship of foreign gods. God is jealous for his own glory. This is often pictured in terms of the marriage relationship. Think back to Hosea. God is jealous when his people whore after other gods. Show me a husband or a wife who does not get jealous when their spouse flirts with another person or another person flirts with their spouse, and I will show you someone who does not understand the weightiness of the covenant bond of marriage. Jealousy is the proper response. It is the godly response in that situation. God is avenging three times here in verses in just in verse two says the lord is a jealous and avenging god the lord is avenging and wrathful the lord takes vengeance same root word there so we see this threefold repeating of god's vengeance this is god's just response to sin and wickedness vengeance and wrath then go together And God can execute these things because he is perfect and holy. These are not things that we are called to carry out on our enemies. Paul writes to the Christians in Rome in Romans chapter 12. Tells them repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. One of the reasons we struggle with some of the difficult questions related to evil is not that we don't correctly recognize true evil. We do. But we insert ourselves in the place of God when it comes to rendering judgment. And our standard is not God's perfect standard. Nor do we understand the motive, the motive that is in the hearts of other people. Now, this does not mean that we should not pursue justice when humanly possible. Rather, it means that the ultimate vengeance and righteous wrath of God will be fully and finally carried out by him and not by us. That is what God's people needed to be reminded of as they suffered at the hands of the wicked Assyrians. Next, we're told that God is slow to anger. Nahum makes a reference here to Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which is quoted or alluded to by Joel, Jonah, Micah, and here in Nahum. That great self-revelation of God to Moses. When God passed before Moses and declared, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. It's easy to quote that first part, right? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, but we don't always like to keep going and say, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Jonah quoted this same verse in reference to God's willingness to forgive the Ninevites when they repented. There we saw God being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, a hundred years later, a new generation of Assyrians are afflicting God's people. And Nahum tells us that God is still slow to anger. But notice the new phrase in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power which we will see play out in the following verses and the lord will by no means clear the guilty we'll come back to this phrase then we come to the last characteristic of god listed in verse seven the lord is good we instinctively know what this means don't we that something is good Think about the way the world, the way children navigate the world and make judgments about things. They respond well when pizza tastes good or steak tastes good. I didn't even know James was going to be talking about that in his children's message. Or sushi tastes good, right? Oatmeal? Who doesn't like oatmeal? Come on. So they respond well when pizza tastes good or when a picture looks good. Or when music sounds good. Or when a fuzzy blanket, James, feels good. James hates fuzzy blankets. Or when a lilac tree smells good. Even Wikipedia acknowledges these things on their good and evil page. Under the history and etymology section, it says, Every language has a word expressing good in the sense of having the right or desirable quality. And bad in the sense undesirable a sense of moral judgment and a distinction right and wrong good and bad are cultural universals so when we say the lord is good we understand that we are making a moral claim and that even wikipedia acknowledges that universal category of good and evil the psalmist cries out in psalm 119 68 to god you are good and do good Teach me your statutes. What a beautiful acknowledgement of the truth of God's goodness. He is good and he does good. And we need to cry out to him to teach us his statutes. Brothers and sisters, this should be the cry of our hearts. God, you are good. And all that you do is good. Teach us your ways. Help us to see you for who you really are. Help us to read Nahum and to understand that your judgment against the world and against wickedness and rebellion is in accordance with your justice and your goodness. Otherwise, if we don't do that, we can't understand what we read in verses 4 through 8, where we see the greatness of God's power. The imagery here in the second half of verse 3 and the first half of verse 4 is in direct opposition to Baal. Baal was the storm God who rides on the clouds. Look at what we see here about the Lord. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. The Lord is God. Baal is nothing. Then in verse 4, these locations that are listed, Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon, They were associated with being lush and productive. God makes them wither. In verse 5, the things that that symbolized stability, the mountains, the hills, the earth, the world, these things are all destabilized by God in his judgment. And we come to the universal questions in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? The answer, obviously, is no one. We are all guilty. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is not a pretty picture. I said we would come back to the phrase from verse 3, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So the question, the title of the sermon today is, will God clear the guilty? The answer is ultimately no, because God says he won't. And God is not a liar. But, and there's always a but, right? We do get a hint of that but in verse 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So all are guilty and God will not clear the guilty. But again, we see here in these verses that God is going to deal with two different kinds of people. The first is what we just saw there in verse 7. This language of refuge is very common in the Psalms. 25 times this word is used in the Psalms. Psalm 2 ends with vivid imagery of the Messiah when it says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Notice similarities there to Nahum 1. But then it concludes with this statement Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 34 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Notice the connection there between God's goodness and and refuge. So that's the first type of person. The second type of person God will deal with is seen in verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. You don't want to be on the receiving end of this. You don't want the flood of his wrath and you don't want to be pursued into darkness. Aaron Rodgers might want the darkness, but you don't seriously pray for that guy. Pray. He's going into four days of darkness on Monday. Pray that the Lord would meet him and break him. I'm dead serious. Pray that prayer. So it's very clear here that there are two ways to live. There are different fates that await humanity. This is very Psalm 1-esque. You either walk in the way of the Lord, or sorry, you either walk in the way of the wicked and you get wrath and destruction, or you delight in the law of the Lord and you get life and blessing from God. Now beginning verse 9 here, from verse 9 through 2-2, this is an outworking of these realities. And Nahum goes back and forth here between addressing Assyria and her king and addressing God's people. It is a back and forth from words of judgment to words of salvation, something we've seen a lot already in the Minor Prophets, really kind of the main theme of the Minor Prophets, this judgment uh, to restoration and salvation. Verses 9 through 11 here address Nineveh and her king. See in verse 9, the destruction of the city and then uh in verse verses 9 and 10 is the destruction of the city and then verse 11 speaks about the king as this wicked counselor verses 12 and 13 then address god's people thus says the lord though they are at full strength and many speaking of the assyrians they will be cut down and pass away though i have afflicted you i will afflict you no more kind of reminiscent of uh, god's Words in Hosea 6, and now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. This is the yoke of the king of Assyria. God saying he will break that yoke and he will free God's people. Verse 14 address is addressed directly to the king of Assyria in this threefold judgment. First, his descendants will be cut off. Second, his false gods will be cut off. And then third, his very own life will be cut off. This is good news for the people of God. Good news of peace for God's people, as we see in verse 15, that they will again keep their festivals and no more be harassed by the Assyrians and her king. Now I want to return to verse 15 in a minute, but let's look finally at the last contrast in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Verse one is this sarcastic taunt against Nineveh. And for the, the, rest, of the, uh, the rest of the book that we'll see next week, uh, is gonna be filled with these several taunts against Nineveh. The scatterer here probably refers to Babylon. The scatterer has come upon you. It's talking about judgment upon Assyria. Babylon would come and destroy Assyria. It could refer to the Lord, but it's probably referring to Babylon. The message here is get ready, Assyria, prepare yourself, city of Nineveh, you are about to be destroyed. And then verse two is a word of hope that God's people, to God's people that restoration is coming. Though they have experienced plunder and ruin, a day is coming when God will restore them and will give them hope. Now this is the last word of hope in Nahum. From two, three to the end of three, it's all judgment, all judgment darkness so get ready for next week let's come back to verse 15 the first half of verse 15 is familiar behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace isaiah 52 contains similar language and it is speaking of the hope of salvation just before that beautiful description of the messiah's suffering in chapter 53 but are Nahum and Isaiah communicating the same thing? In Isaiah, the good news was future salvation. In Nahum, the good news is the destruction of the Assyrian king and his wicked empire. Opalma Robertson explains that both of these elements must be combined if the kingdom of God actually is to be realized on earth. Then he explains the significance of the joining of these prophecies by Paul in Romans chapter 10, which we saw in our New Testament reading. Robertson says, For the good news of the gospel contains the message that salvation has come for God's people. But it also underscores the fact that principalities and powers under Satan's control have been despoiled by Christ on the cross. All the wickedness embodied in the brutal king of Nineveh finds its consummate expression in the powers of Satan that opposed the establishment of God's kingdom of righteousness and grace. But the cross of Christ has dispelled these powers and openly displayed them as defeated. Robertson says that the cross of Christ has despoiled and dispelled the powers of Satan. The cross is the dividing line for humanity. It's the dividing line for the two types of people listed in verses 7 and 8. We are either taking refuge in the finished work of Christ on the cross as our guilt bearer, or we are swept away in our rebellion. If you are a Christian here today, the message is simple. You were guilty. But if you have taken refuge in Christ, then your guilt has been removed. You are not guilty. Praise the Lord. Will God clear the guilty? No, but your guilt has been removed by Jesus. Your debt has been paid and you are free to go. You are not guilty. But if you are here today and you are not yet a Christian, the message is also simple. You are guilty. And if you don't take refuge in Jesus, turning from your sins and repentance and embracing him by faith then the lord will act consistently with his character and you will be swept away in your sin and guilt you will not be cleared if you've tried to shape god in your own image to say the god i believe in fill in the blank then take it from nineveh and her wicked king Rebellion against God never ends well. In the first part of our New Testament reading from Romans 3, we read these words. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath bearer by his blood, to be received by faith. It's the same thing we saw in the children's message about the meaning of the atonement. That Christ satisfied God's justice by suffering and de- by his suffering and death as a substitute for sinners. That great exchange that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 5:21 for our sake God made him Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of the gospel. Will God clear the guilty? No. Will he clear those whom Christ paid their guilt and who are righteous in his sight? Yes, that's the good news. This is the message that needs to be proclaimed from the mountaintops to all guilty sinners. Christ alone can clear the guilty. And he will, he will clear all of those who trust in him. So friends, let us look to him. Let us embrace Christ by faith. Let us trust in his grace and his mercy and his goodness and his justice and his wrath, knowing that in him, we are clear. In him, we are free to go. Let us pray. God, we rejoice in the truth of your word. We rejoice that we can go to this obscure minor prophet thousands of years ago in a faraway land, in a faraway culture. And we can see this message of hope for those who trust in you, who take refuge in you. We can see the reality, God, that you will act consistently with your character. You will judge justly. You will not clear the guilty. But God, you will clear all of those who trust in you, who take refuge in you through your son, Jesus Christ. God, may that be true of us. May we be those who rest in you, who take refuge in you, who turn from our sins and turn to Christ, our sin and guilt bearer. God, help us to live out the reality of what it means to be a follower of Christ what it means to be someone who goes out into this world, who proclaims the good news of peace, the good news of reconciliation. God, that we would be your ambassadors, calling others to be reconciled to Christ, declaring that Christ is their only hope. And when we are confronted with difficult questions, that we would humbly respond, God, that we would declare To others what you've done in our lives that we would show them your goodness we would show them your mercy by the way we we humbly respond to their questions by the way we seek to to make you known and god we ask that you would do the work that you alone can do that you would open the eyes of guilty sinners god that you would turn them from their sin you would forgive them you would give them hope you would show them your goodness And the God that you would be pleased to use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.